Listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, the 9th of February. I'm Katrina Blowers and today, the third and final part of our special birth series. We're talking to the founder of Australian Birth Stories about our national maternity crisis. It's been nearly six months, the women of that community, and it's not a small community. I think there's over 30,000 people living in that community. And for um, birthing people, they need to travel to Rockhampton, which is 200 kilometres down the Bruce Highway, to seek medical care. Why women in regional Australia are being let down by a lack of maternity care, we're also going to talk about the flow-on effects of birth trauma. A fascinating chat with Sophie Walker that's in the second half of this podcast. But first, let's get into all of today's headlines. I'm joined by Jan Fran. Yeah, g'day, Kat. We're going to start today... um With a really intense story, we're going to Turkey where the death toll following the two massive earthquakes there has passed 11,000. There are four Australians as well who remain unaccounted for. Time is running short. It is very, very cold at the moment. I'm freezing here. I cannot imagine the, the people who are doing search and rescue. I cannot imagine the people under the rubble. Yeah, people under the rubble uh, there for days now. That was Oxfam's Merriam Aslan uh, on 7.30 there. By the end of the week, there should be 72 Australian search and rescue personnel in Turkey. They are heading there now. Yeah, the president has acknowledged that the initial response to the disaster wasn't really up to scratch and he blamed delays on damaged roads, uh, I guess, so. There was so much damage and devastation. It would have been almost impossible to get to some of those areas. I, I've been finding the imagery that's been coming out of the country so powerful and so upsetting. I saw this incredibly uh, tragic picture of a dad last night who's been sitting on a camp chair by the rubble of his home, holding the hand of his teenage daughter who's passed away, who's um, still in her bedroom. Uh, so stuff like that. It, it just, your heart goes out to everyone going through that. Yeah, I saw that photo too. And um, I actually couldn't look at it for too long, to be honest mm. with you. And part of me feels really guilty for just scrolling past. Mm. But there's so much devastation it kind of seems like it's it's a lot to comprehend i mm. mean even the who the world health organization says that up to 23 million people could be affected they called it a crisis upon a crisis because you're not just dealing with the earthquake but you're dealing with a lack of aid in places um in syria for example you're dealing with extremely harsh winter conditions mm. you're dealing with people who are now displaced You know, what happens to those millions of people? Where do they go and how quickly are they able to rebuild? So, yeah, a crisis upon a crisis, I think, is a a diplomatic way of putting it. The investigation into the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 in 2014 has been suspended. The international team behind the investigation say they've done as much as they can, but any more would require Russia's assistance and Russia has refused to help. A total of three names of officers emerged who may have been involved in the downing of MH17. However, to date, the investigation has not been able to find any further confirmation of this. The Russian authorities have refused to answer any questions about the crew, as they maintain that there was never any Russian book in eastern Ukraine. 
One of the members of the international team investigating the shooting, AFP Assistant Commissioner David McLean there, their final discovery is that there are strong indications Russian President Vladimir Putin approved the supply of a book missile system to separatists in eastern Ukraine. Uh, It was the same system used to shoot down the aircraft. It killed 298 people on board, including 38 Australians, Jan. There were quite a few Queenslanders involved in that, and I've done a number Mm. of interviews with their families over the years. Two of them were really prominent doctors in the Toowoomba community, so it left a huge hole in medical care in in that part of the world. Uh, They'll never have answers. They'll never know why. Yeah, it must be hard to hear this news if you were a family member of someone who passed away on that flight just you know sorry we can't go any further we mm. there's there's no scope left to investigate um I, I will say they didn't suggest that vladimir putin ordered the aircraft to be shot down that remains a mystery and looks like it will remain a mystery into the foreseeable future um because under dutch law vladimir putin can't be prosecuted because he is a head of state so basically, if, if you know, you want to kind of open uh, prosecution up for him, he needs to no longer be the president or no longer be the head of state. But he's been either prime minister or president of that country since 1999. And we can expect to receive a pamphlet in our letterbox explaining the voice to parliament before the referendum. So look out for that pamphlet. It's a coming. Um, it's a backflip, actually, by the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Uh, his government has previously said that there's no need to send a pamphlet. It's an outdated way to inform voters about the referendum in the digital age. But the opposition has been arguing that it is necessary for Australians to be able to make an informed decision. Peter Dutton says that the pamphlet is helpful for those who are elderly um, or from migrant backgrounds. Maybe their first language isn't in English, so it's good to have that um, translated. There is a law, Katrina, that says that a pamphlet must be distributed outlining the proposed change to the Constitution, 2,000 words each on either the yes <laughs> side or the no side. And Imagine the pressure by the, of writing yeah, those 2,000 words. That sounds like a kind of anxiety dream that I have from uni or high school of the, the most um, concise essay you would have to write in your whole life. Well, look, I think the pressure probably would have been a bit stronger in years past because that might have been maybe one of the (laughs) only sources of information. But I will say in the year of our Lord 2023, there's a lot of sources of information um, that that people can turn to. So, you know, maybe the pressure's off just a little bit. This was something that that Peter Dutton wanted from the government um, in order... for him to lend Liberal Party support to the referendum. And basically the Labor Party want the Libs on board. Uh, You know, they want bipartisan support for The Voice. So they're sort of acquiescing and saying, yes, okay, you want a pamphlet? We will do a pamphlet. No problem. Will you support The Voice now? (laughs) Uh, And and the Liberal Party have, have, have yet to commit. The Greens say yes. The Nationals say no. There's a question mark around the Liberals. And details of how Shane Warne's $21 million fortune will be divided up have been released by the Supreme Court. 
So each of his three kids will take away 31% while his son Jackson also picks up Warney's vehicle collection. And that's a pretty amazing collection. There's one car worth $375,000. Warney left the remainder of his assets to his brother, his niece and nephew, while nothing was left to his former wife, Simone. I guess, unsurprisingly, nothing was also left to his former fiancée, Liz Hurley. What surprised me, Jan was how savvy Warney was with with all his money. He had a considerable amount of foreign shares of property, money in the bank, like amazing work, Warney. But he also had a massive credit card bill. So that has made me feel a little bit better about my life. So his credit card bill was $17,500. you got to think that that's got to be on more than one card, but who knows? Maybe when you get to Warney's status, you have a credit card that allows you to spend much more than us mere citizens are on our paltry incomes. Yeah, must be all that money that he got for advanced hair, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is that, is that a very dated reference? I still, I got it, Jan, so you that's where it. I'm at okay. too. This is very important news and information that I need everybody to know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Warney did balding hair treatment commercials in the 90s and noughties, I think, and became the face of advanced hair. And it was great. It was great. It's beautiful nostalgia for me. And also it it worked because he had a beautiful head of hair right till the end. He had some hair. Some hair. I can't believe I'm saying you're talking about Shane Warne's hair. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a win. He had hair. So the product did what it was meant to do. All right, in just a sec, part three of our Briefing Birth series, we're talking to the founder of Australian Birth Stories about the maternity crisis in regional Australia. Now to part three of our Briefing Birth series, and this one is on Australia's maternity crisis. Regional hospitals across the country are putting their maternity wards on bypass because of a lack of specialist obstetricians. And what this means is that women have to travel for hours to get appropriate care. One of the women who's brought this issue into the national focus is Sophie Walker. She's the founder of the Australian Birth Stories podcast. She's revolutionised and normalised tricky conversations around birth, particularly traumatic birth stories. And she joins us on The Briefing now. So Sophie, let's go back in time. Why did you start Australian Birth Stories? I started the podcast after I had my second son and I had a really challenging first birth and I'd consider it traumatic. So I fell into that category of one in three Australian women that have a traumatic birth. But my second birth experience was really beautiful. And I really feel like the difference between my two pregnancies and and the way that I prepared was that I immersed myself in birth stories. And at that time, I was listening to English and American podcasts because it was before podcasts were really a big deal in Australia. So it was in 2017. And after his birth, a friend of mine said, oh, you know, you love podcasts so much. Why don't you make an Australian one that's got 
Australian experiences and hospitals we know of here and drugs, the, the names of the drugs are what we use and things like that. And um, so we sort of I started it for fun, really, and didn't assume it would turn into the beautiful business that it is today. But um, yeah, it was just the first episode is my second birth experience. And then I interviewed kind of my sister and then some close friends. And I was begging people to come on and share their story because I thought, oh, podcasts need to keep consistent. I have to do one every week, which is funny now because I've got over 5,000 applications to come on the show. So no shortage of content now. That is amazing that there are so many women who are willing to be so vulnerable and open up and tell their stories, including you've had some really high profile guests on there as well. Tell us a bit about some of those. Yeah. So I've had Zoe Foster-Blake and Megan Gale and, um, quite a few Olympic athletes. There's something unique about the way that you ask somebody if they want to share their story. More often than not, they say yes. So I've just approached a lot of these higher profile guests that I know my listeners have said, oh, I'd love to hear the story of sort of Zoe Foster Blake. Can you make that happen? So then I try. So it's a real mixture of high profile kind of influencers and people we know mixed in with everyday mums that are really relatable to um, the majority of the listeners. Birth is so often something that's quite a private thing. You know, there's only a couple of people in the room, maybe it's usually, um, you know, usually, but not always in, in a hospital behind closed doors. When I started following you on Instagram, though, I have to admit at first, I found it a little bit shocking to see the the intimacy of the images, which of course are so beautiful and natural and raw. How has that response been? Do you feel like you've really demystified and um, celebrated this process? It's unique to be a fly on the wall in people's most intimate life-altering moments. So it's beautiful to see that there's been a real rise in birth photography and it's a lot more commonplace now for women, well, definitely in the circles that I'm in, um, for women to request to have a birth photographer and not just for vaginal births in cesareans as well. So we're seeing really intimate things that, yeah, we're not normally privy to. So to be able to share the firsthand accounts of these experiences with minute detail, my episodes are usually over an hour long, so we really cover it the nitty gritty, um, and then to be able to support those with the beautiful imagery really makes people feel like they were there. And um, it's a beautiful way to educate yourself, It's we've found. Is there an episode that's really stood out as getting a huge response? Probably my most popular kind of influential guest is Steph Claire Smith. And I think that's just everybody has built a lovely rapport with her over the years and her business. And we're really curious to know how she managed in her birth. And then um, my probably my most second popular one is with uh, a good friend of mine, Jodie, who I've just co-written a book with. Um, her birth episode, she shares four birth experiences that were all really different, but she is a yoga teacher and birth educator. So throughout her episode, which is episode 105, if people want to look it up, she really gives some tangible um, skills and tricks you can use in your labor. She demonstrates some breathing exercises and that's one people usually go back and listen to. Yeah, I think, you know, your building of that community has been just huge and and so needed. You mentioned a statistic before about traumatic births and I've got to say, I didn't realise it was that high. What are some examples of birthing trauma and in the conversations that you've had, the impact that it can have on women? 
Yeah, I think people like to throw away the term, you know, oh, well, you've got a healthy baby and a healthy mum. So, you know, it's just one day in your life. And I think that's really dismissive of of what can unfold and how um, far reaching the implications can go. So in my own experience, um, I had a postpartum hemorrhage and needed forceps. And so now I've got lifelong issues with prolapse and um, need to see a physio and a pelvic floor um, rehab to really work on that. So I'll always have issues with that from that birth. Um, But I think emotionally it was really traumatic for me and I was really caught off guard. And so then I approached breastfeeding and caring for a newborn on the back foot and feeling really like I'd been blindsided by my birth. And I think a lot of women report that, but I feel like the most common thread throughout the traumatic experiences is people felt like they weren't being consulted in the in their birth. People have reported having episiotomies, so having that incision um, to help get the baby out without consent. So if you feel like you're vulnerable and you're in the throes of labor and contracting and you've got medical professionals doing things to you that you don't feel like you're consenting to, that can also have a huge um, repercussion and make you come out feeling traumatized. Similarly, we've got a real rise in um, talking more about postpartum anxiety anxiety and depression. And that can often start and stem from a traumatic birth. So it's really is far reaching. I don't think you'll find a woman who's forgotten the details of their birth. It's not something that you just kind of forget and move on. It's really, um, yeah, a life altering moment in your life. Some of those physical symptoms that you mentioned there, those those injuries that can stay with you throughout your lifetime, that I imagine that they can affect you in all different stages of your life. Um, they can affect your capacity to even do your job and, and to be the mother that perhaps you thought you would be. I also imagine it would impact on your relationship. What, what have men told you about trauma and how they've processed that? Yeah, I think it can be incredibly traumatic for um, a partner to witness their loved one giving birth to their child and going through so much trauma. I know for my husband, he um, he went and was crying in the other room and thought in my first son's birth that my son was going to die because he came out not breathing and then I was hemorrhaging and he'd never seen so much blood. So he suddenly thought he was going to lose us both. And I think there's a difference between experiencing that and being the birthing um, mother because I had my own issues going on, but I also had a surge of hormones and I was contracting. So I was less kind of lucid and present, whereas birth support team are coming in, they're not contracting, they haven't got a hormone rush and they're just seeing you and seeing the whole picture of what's unfolding and seeing the expressions of doctors and midwives and seeing emergency buttons being pushed. And I think there's a real gap in um, caring for support people post-birth. Yeah, it's definitely you can experience PTSD and all sorts of things witnessing that trauma. Part of the trauma for for many women lately, and I think we've all seen the headlines in the newspapers about a maternity crisis that's going on in many regional hospitals at the moment. Can you just explain what that is and and how bad it is? Yeah, it's really, really bad. And it's um, incredibly disappointing in a country such as Australia to see it unfolding. And it feels like the beginning of a, a bit of a landslide, to be honest. So um, perhaps the most notable one that's been covered in the media of late is in Queensland, and that's in Gladstone. And that population of women have not had access to maternity care. The maternity unit in their local hospital has been on bypass for um 
over 200 days. I think they've just got an obstetrician in and they're changing that now. But so it's been nearly six months, the women of that community, and it's not a small community. I think there's over 30,000 people living in that community. And for um, birthing people, they need to travel to Rockhampton, which is 200 kilometres down the Bruce Highway to seek medical care. And that's put an incredible pressure on the Rockhampton Hospital, which is also taking um, inpatients from Biloela, I think. So it's incredibly stressful. And these women are then in this terrible limbo of not knowing who will be providing care for them on the day. And it's not just Queensland in Victoria, where I'm based. They've just closed the Epworth Private Hospital, which is down near Geelong. And Geelong is the fastest growing regional area in Victoria. And it's had a real boom since COVID of people moving down for a sea change, but it's just become a really popular area for small um, young families to start their life there. It's more affordable to buy housing. And that private hospital is closing on the 31st of March, meaning that all the women in the care there now need to find other suitable care through either the Geelong Hospital or St John of God that raises other issues. It's the only secular private hospital in that area. So women that are now going to St. John of God have got concerns that they'll have um, be met with issues based on religion because they won't do tubal ligation. They won't do DNCs or terminations. So what needs to be done here? I know that, as you mentioned, in Gladstone, they've now got an obstetrician there so they can do uh, emergency caesareans once again. But the health minister in Queensland has said full maternity services are still six months away. So that's still a fair way off. What does the government need to do now? Does this need to be elevated to a federal issue? Yeah, I think it definitely does because it's having a real knock-on effect and it's hard to draw in more obstetricians and midwives into a really struggling service. So I know if I was a midwife and then you're looking at job applications, do you want to work at Rockhampton that's under extreme pressure? It's less appealing. And then so how do you draw in great quality midwives and obstetricians and not just those, then they need paediatricians and anaesthetists. It's a whole team. And it's hard to encourage people to go into that field and then also go into regional areas when they're under such pressure. So it there needs to be a multifaceted approach to this. We need encouraging people to take up the study in these areas, which is um, yeah not happening as much, make the working conditions more flexible, I think as well, because a lot of midwives are mothers and they want to work flexibly. So job share and they're just grossly underpaid. So it's hard to encourage people to go into such a stressful profession when the pay is just not there. And I've seen some, um, St. John of God is now um, paying $6,000 bonuses to try and get midwives to join their hospital. And there's sort of criticisms that the Epworth didn't try and entice people into those positions to be able to keep that hospital open. That was Sophie Walker, the founder of the Australian Birth Stories podcast, wrapping up our special briefing birth series. Sophie's also just co-written a book called The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth, which is well worth checking out. Thank you so much to all the women who shared their stories with us in our other episodes where we've explored solo motherhood by choice and the current state of play when it comes to IVF. Really important conversations. We're very grateful to you for being so open. Listener.